Hello and welcome to Serverless Transformation, a podcast dedicated to all things serverless. In this week's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Sirkin and Emra from Thundra. Hi, and welcome to Serverless Transformation. My name is Ben Ellaby, and today I'm joined by Sirkin and Emra from Thundra. Emra, do you want to give a quick introduction to yourself? Hey, thank, thank you, Ben, for having us today here. I'm Emra Shandan. I'm working as VP of Product at Thundra trying to help the, the serverless community with the observability and security. And Sirkin, do you want to give an intro to yourself? Yeah. Uh, hi, Ben. Thanks for hosting us. And this is Sirkin Azal. So I am the CTO and the founder of Tundra. So, so as you know, that Tundra is a serverless debugging and monitoring solution. So in Tundra, so I am leading the technical stuff most of the time and writing and writing code if I could find time. Um, yeah, uh, that's all for me. Nice. And I think um, both of you have a bit of connection to the service transformation projects because Emra, you joined the panel discussion way back uh, when this kicked off. And uh, Sirkin, you've actually contributed to the SLS DevTools project uh, over the past couple of weeks. So you are still finding a bit of time to code, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. From time to time, I am playing with the, with the SLS DevTools. So, so as I said, uh, there's a potential for the tool uh, which might be a de facto tool during the for the service developers because there are still opportunities to be added to the to the SLS dev tools and also very easy to contribute to the tool because because it is written with a clean implementation so it is not very hard to to understand the implementation and contribute it so so that is the reason that why I just sent my first pull request to contribute the tool because, because I believe that there's opportunity for a tool and that might be one of the uh, de facto tools to be used for service development. And also it is very easy to, to be familiar with the, with the tool. Sure. And for those not familiar, the SLS DevTools is an open source project that myself, some other people at Theodo and, and an open source group of people, including Circan, uh, are contributing to, to improve the development experience of serverless. All in the command line is sort of a dashboard interface. I think that transitions us onto my first question quite nicely because I was going to ask um, what are the current pain points in serverless development and what do you see the future of serverless development looking like? like in my opinion, serverless actually uh, shifted the, the, you know, the development and also maintenance to, to the developers. While it was like different silos before developers and ops people for even like the microservices architecture, now we have like a... Like, a set of people who can do both the who can actually develop the application and also maintain it, and this actually created a shift in terms of the tooling that they are using. So, like the debugging was kind of a developer tool, but now it's it's a developer, but uh, the same developer should use an observability tool and should also be responsible for for security. So uh, the the challenges are now you are uh, actually doing less to to maintain or, or just deliver an application, but you need to check like more stuff because you are the you are now the responsible one. And a lot of that responsibility is falling onto the individual developer. I think the full stack developer of today looks very different to the full stack developer of three years ago, exactly. uh, because yeah, you, need, you have to deal with IAM policies and front end code and back end code and security observability, all of that stuff. Have you seen the similar challenges there, Sarkin? Yeah, uh, first time I met with the AWS Lambda platform uh, was the beginning of the 2017. So I had started to, to, to Opsini 
And one of the new features of Ops Genie was decided uh, to be implemented on top of AWS Lambda platform. And then we start to implement the feature. Uh, but at first, it, everything was okay, was easy. But then the things becoming challenging, become challenging. So it was not easy anymore uh, because by the by the beginning of 20, uh, 2017, the AWS Lambda platform was not ready for prime, prime time. So it lacked some some critical features which are uh, which which are required when you went to production and some of the lacked features are related with the lack of the tooling set like debugging and the monitoring tools so so in fact this uh, this requirement was the origin of why we built tundra inside optioning internally and then it spun off as a different company that makes complete sense. And I think, yeah, we saw a big change in how developers were working with their resources in the yeah. cloud. Yeah. And I think we're, we're seeing like a newer trend of these serverless first architectures, a lot of what I build with my clients. And we're seeing new patterns of of teams no longer having, you know, like the one or two AWS accounts, but really having different AWS accounts, not only for different environments, but even for different services within companies. I know Kazoo, um, a company who I've interviewed before in service transformation, they have different AWS uh, accounts for the different services that they have. And then they use AWS organizations and SSO to sort of manage that. But I guess that, that sort of presents new challenges to observability. Is that something you guys have been seeing more with your clients? Uh, so like we see that like companies are now working uh, the, the, as an individual. Uh, like the developers can actually create their own implementation and on their own account and the uh, AWS organizations are, is the best way to actually uh, just give them enough liberty to, to build something and also a nice level of integrity with the rest of the team. And like we see that like, and the, we, we are seeing questions like, uh, hey, like we have tens of AWS accounts in our company and we also want to actually understand it, like not only in, in production with our product account, but we also, we also understand what we are doing in development. And like we ha- like happily ha- help them with that by just providing like multi-account strategy that we already, like since inception we already have. And in this case, actually, as a company, you can work together and it's also has this kind of an collaboration effect that you can show your colleagues what you are doing not exactly showing your code or just what's happening, just just showing the trace chart that you generated by Tundra, and just and they understand how it is working, what 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 type of data it's exchanging, and it's actually uh, in, improving the the, uh, the collaboration in the company in, in in this way. Anything you'd add on to that, second? Uh, so I definitely agree with the with the thoughts of Emra. So so basically, uh, we provide some. Some some high level and the low level details about the about the, the service environments on the users AWS accounts, so users will be able to to understand their application behavior. And for example, when they look at the the architecture, the topology, so they can understand they can understand the other parts of the application. So so it was also make make it easier to to onboarding the 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 new employees to the project because they could easily understand the uh, the flow between the different microservices, different service applications with with Tundra. Sure, and I think um, we're, again with these serverless first architectures, we're seeing the you know the multi account strategy becoming more important. We're also seeing a lot more people leveraging uh, EventBridge in AWS for connecting these different microservices, be them in the same AWS account or even across AWS accounts. 
is more and more becoming a pattern. Um, what are the like observability challenges that you've seen with trying to adopt event bridge into architectures? I think Sarkhan, this is for you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I'm about to start. Okay, uh, so the challenge is that so before before the service service first architectures generally generally applications are interacting with each other through through HTTP calls. So they are just making the syn- synchronous HTTP calls to other services. But anymore, the architectures becomes uh, to, be, to communicate with each other through through different serverless services. So so we call it, we call this as event driven architectures. So basically, they are communicating with each other so in asynchronous way. So they are just uh, sending messages to to each other through through queues or the streams. So this also decouples the, the applications between uh, between each other. And also, event page is one of them. Uh, so it is the more advanced. So so basically, you can think you can think event page. Uh, the more advanced one of the SNS, so basically they are they are similar uh, with each other, but but EventBridge uh, provides some some more advanced features. So so to communicate between different different applications, they didn't know each other even. So they just send event, they just send their messages, they just publish their messages events to the to the other, and then the only the relevant applications can can get the required events. So from the high level, they don't know each other anymore. So they just know uh, what events they are required and what events they are sent to their publishers to be used by the others. And that makes uh, development, I guess, a lot easier. Or from what I see with teams, it makes development easier. But does it make observability harder, do you think? Because we no longer can rely on just like tracing HTTP requests. Yeah. So uh, the, the... the, uh, the traditional solution was for for HTTP tracing is that just put some trace ID into the HTTP header and send the trace ID to the to the target site. But with the event-driven architectures like like Event Bridge, so this is not feasible anymore because uh, because you don't want to you don't want to change the payload itself. So so in here, uh, so Sandra, we are also evaluating different approaches for for linking between different applications because anymore they are not direct connection between the applications. But before, uh, the applications are, were calling each other directly through HTTP calls, but anymore uh, with the event-driven architectures, uh, the applications doesn't love each other directly. They just publish their events and then their events are consumed by, by the other applications, by the other subscribed applications. So in this case, we require some some modifications in our observability platform. So that is the reason that why new monitoring solutions uh, rises like Tundra because uh, the communication path between the applications are not uh, the same with before. So they are communicating with each other in asynchronous way with event-driven architectures platforms. And I don't know if you'd have this data to hand, but do you know roughly in your head sort of what proportion of your customers have started using EventBridge in some form? Well, in my opinion, the adoption was low last year. And like in these days, like AWS is doing a really good job just promoting EventBridge. And, and like, I should also say that like Ben, like you are doing also a very good job of like how EventBridge can be useful in an event-driven architecture. So this actually uh, created a kind of a boost in terms of usage of EventBridge. Uh, like I like I'm not prepared to give kind of a proportion, but like 
you know, it was almost zero like uh, last year, and now it, it's just slowly increasing. And just maybe I can say like ten or ten or twenty percent of people are using EventBridge, and we highly recommend using EventBridge because you know, uh, like we are the, now the only only provider like uh, not even XA can do this that yet can show you the like, the traces that's coming and out of X- EventBridge. So they are they are just using EventBridge and seeing how the events are being exchanged between several applications or or, you know, like the several Lambda functions. And that's why we are actually encouraging our customers to do that. And it, yeah, it's, it's great that you guys have supported EventBridge. It was something I was sort of uh, maybe bugging you for, Ember, before it was released. <laughs> um, and it's really, really cool to see it out there. And I think one of the really interesting conversations we can have is you guys work with a range of customers. Um, I think one of the reasons that the content I produce around serverless um, <clears throat> can be of interest is because it's as working with different clients I see a range of different architectures, but I think you guys see a range of different architectures on a different level to what I see. Mm-hmm. What I don't know, I don't know how much of this conversation you have with your customers, but do you have an idea of the sort of range of different business reasons that different customers move to serverless? I know uh, you know we see a lot about cost, we see a lot about speed, but maybe there's some other more interesting stories you could tell. If it's a startup uh, and there are like very good, nice front-end engineers or even like back-end engineers, but they know nothing about infrastructure. So like the, instead of the just learning about like how to host an application using Kubernetes pods, they just go serverless and build something to the market like very fastly. And this is kind of a, you know, like very understandable reason. But like for enterprises, this is kind of surprising that like uh, they almost think identically same. So because like uh, they don't have that much of people uh, who can actually devote to infrastructure because the existing infrastructure people is already very busy of maintaining the all uh, the 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 existing applications and for uh, if they are doing a like greenfield application they just decide to go serverless and just to test the hypothesis that the enterprises have so this just creates this flexibility. And if they are doing something like lift and shift or kind of a brownfield project, so they see this as an opportunity for infrastructure people or ops people to actually step into the development world. So culturally, actually, serverless enables people to shift their careers, also enables companies to actually deliver faster and by by using their human resource more effectively. Are they similar things to what you've seen, Sakin? So as far as I see that, the, the companies... The, the big enterprise companies start serverless by by implementing some scheduled DevOps jobs jobs there uh, over AWS Lambda platform. So they are just making some some running some scheduled task on with AWS Lambda, and then they starting implementing the new applications, new features on top of the serverless platform when they are when they understand when they understood the the benefits and the advantages of the serverless. So, but also the migrating the legacy applications to serverless is a challenge for them uh, because of different reasons, and cold start is also one of them because the applications uh, general because the legacy applications generally have uh, higher uh, startup times. So when they just lift and shift these legacy applications to to the uh, to the AWS Lambda platform, they are facing with the huge cold start latencies, and especially for the Java runtime users. Because as far as I see that, they are just uh, trying to move the legacy Spring applications, web applications into the Lambda Lambda platform. But in this case, they are facing with uh, tens of seconds uh, cold start latency. So, so if they put 
these kind of applications uh, to the user-facing architectures. So, so their customers are facing with the huge uh, delays to 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 use their applications. But for, for for the new startups, so it was easy to start with the serverless because they are just implementing some API uh, by by API gateway and then uh, and then using and then calling the lambda functions behind the behind the API gateway and then they just use the DynamoDB or the other AWS storage services. So it was very easy and fast to to build a to build an architecture with with the service service platform, but but as I said for the enterprise one, so it was not very easy to to move the legacy applications into the uh, Lambda platform. So they start with the greenfield applications, and also they start with the some some scheduled some scheduled tasks running on the Lambda platform to be familiar with AWS Lambda first, and then trying to, to consider move the the other applications. Uh, to servers. You touched on two interesting things there, both the runtimes and the cold starts. In terms of the cold starts, and that's often related, I think, to the runtime that's used, have you seen an increase in usage of provisioned concurrency since it was released? So, so we, we also have the warm-up plugin. So uh, according to the feedbacks from our users and customers, they are preferred to use our warm-up plugin because they, they think that uh, using the provision concurrency is not very cheap, so still they are willing. So still they are not willing to pay for keeping some some amount of lambda containers active. So they just uh, want to continue with our warm up plugin. Uh, so as far as I see that there is no uh, big uh, movement to the new provision concurrency feature. Uh, because because people think that it's not very cheap, so they they don't want to pay more, uh, pay multiple times more than the than their current uh, lambda prices, lambda build bills. And I guess that warm uh, plugin that you talked about, there's a couple of different ones um, around, and I think it's been a strategy a lot of people have used. Um, specifically, how does the Thundra warm up plugin work? So. So, it, so 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 I remember the times that when I was uh, started to to implement a warmer plugin because because at Opsini we were using the Java runtime and we were also implementing a lambda function which uh, whose delays are affects the, the end users and then we just uh, and, and also we were seeing higher call start times about uh, four or five seconds because of the JVM start type uh, latency. And then we just want to make the application seeing uh, lower cost start frequencies. And then we, at, at first, we just implement a basic cost start uh, plugin. So it's basically warm-up plugin, which basically it sends some, some empty messages to the container to keep, uh, to keep at least one, one, one Lambda container alive. But then, but then we noticed that uh, when there are multiple uh, multiple invocations concurrently handled by AWS Lambda platform, we need to have more AWS Lambda Lambda container uh, warm uh, during some amount of time, and then we just added some some modifications to our warmer plugin. So in this case, our warmer plugin sends the empty messages uh, concurrently uh, by by assuming that. It will be so. These empty warm-up messages will be handled by different uh, Lambda containers at the same time. So to do this, 
So it basically just puts some some sleep so at the target lambda site, which is handled by the Tundra agent automatically. You don't need to do anything. Uh, so that uh, the, the concurrent request, so that we are trying to enforce uh, to to handle the sending the, the sent uh, the empty messages uh, by the different lambda containers. So in this case, uh, we are just making our best. Uh, to to keep some amount of lambda containers active, so so in theory, so it doesn't guarantee to to have these amount of containers active all the time. But in practice, most of the time, so we believe that there will be enough uh, lambda containers around to to handle the incoming request. Okay, makes sense. Um, and yeah, I think provision concurrency is something that was very exciting in its release, and I think there are some use cases it's very exciting for. But I think people are still skeptical about how the pricing works for that. And I think that's, you know, uh, something that I'm probably, I probably will see tooling come out for to try and give better sort of, we've seen power tuning of memory and timeouts for lambdas. Maybe we're going to see the same thing for provision concurrency to figure out how to optimize for cost or to optimize for latency. Yeah. The good thing also is that VPC, VPC call starts not a problem anymore because yes. AWS, yeah, it solved the problem. And also it was one of the major uh, major problems of the serverless, serverless because when you implement a new when you implement a new lambda function, generally you will you just put the, the lambda function inside VPC because you are just because you may uh, you may interact with the with the AWS services inside VPC like like Elastic Cache or the RDS. So in this case, you need to put your lambda function inside VPC. But uh, when you use VPC, you uh, you were seeing very high uh, call start latencies, even sometimes more more than ten seconds because of the network interface attached. But fortunately, AWS handled this problem, so this is not a this is not a problem anymore. Yeah, it's uh, it's great when the cloud providers do things that we don't have to make any change for. Yeah, exactly. I think overnight, people saw some very different latencies. Um, and in terms of big pain points with serverless, one cool thing that you guys have released this year, and I think. I mean, I've spoken about it with you guys before, but I think it's worth touching on, is the uh, remote debugging. Maybe, Amory, you could give us some insight from the user's perspective about how remote debugging works with Thundra. And then Sirkin, maybe you could tell a bit about how it's implemented under the hood. Yeah. So let's start. So debugging uh, was kind of a headache for everyone in, in Thundra team even. So like we we thought that like how we are going to tackle with this problem you know as a, as a like a normal serverless developer our developers are also tried like many many things just like using an sam local invoke which was quite okay for many cases and using like mocking libraries which was not actually okay that much and then like replicating the aws services in the local which was a disaster to, to maintain so like we did try different approaches internally as well and we thought that like actually we have the power of solving this problem and it's it's actually a bit like interesting that like it took us for a, for a while to hey we can actually solve this problem and we thought that hey if debugging should be like even if you do let's say the, the best version i say the same local invoke but like it just runs a local version lo- version of your function and uses the cloud resources for, let's say, other AWS services like SQS or or Dynamo. Uh, this is quite good, but it actually couldn't uh, replicate the behavior of function on cloud because you know we don't know what profile it has. We don't know like if it's behind VPC or not. We thought that debugging should be also on cloud. So and it was kind of a challenge that Sakan can now 
explain it better than me. But like we, what we do, did is actually that enabling people to debug their applications while they are running on cloud. So uh, when you attach our debugger to your function, and when you just install our uh, ID plugins for we have for VS Code and IntelliJ IDEA, uh, you can actually set up a secure bridge between your uh, AWS environment and also between your ID. Uh, and uh, in this way, like while the execution is occurring on your AWS environment, you can actually pause it by putting a breakpoint as you could already do, like pre-cloud days or like microservices. So this is kind of an revolutionary in terms of like debugging applications because it just lets you to play with real data and see the performance and just test the new cases, just change, playing with the variables. And in this case, you can understand like you can make sure that how your code is will work. And we previously also like had the had the capability of offline debugging. What we say like in Tundra, you could already see what was happening, what what happened in your code after execution, line by line. And we just brought this capability to to real time, like the online debugging, and it just lets you to pause and play an AWS Lambda invocation, AWS Lambda invocation, and it's just a you know like kind of a nice uh, and very very actually useful tool for developers now. And we got very positive feedbacks about it, and everyone who touches it just like thinks the, if this this is a magic or not. It is sort of like a black box of magic because it seems just like conceptually so so magical that you can put a breakpoint in your local like VS code, and that's working in the random Lambda container that's operating somewhere in the internet. It's a really cool connection that you've made. And maybe Serkan, could you talk a bit about how you achieved that? Uh, so, I, so three and a half, uh, half year ago, so I remember the times that when I first met with the AWS Lambda platform, I just putting some some log statement around the code and redeploy the application. So if I couldn't find the reason, and then I just add more logs and then redeploy the application. So in these times, so so I wish uh, that there there uh, uh, there could be a tool for for debugging. And then while we are uh, Talking internally each other, so, so as I said that we thought that I think uh, this is a general requirement for for all the people, and then we uh, we start to 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 find a way to to make it available for everyone. So so under the hood, basically, I should say I should clearly say that uh, for for remote debugging, for online debugging, we are not making any instrumentation or simulation at all. So we are providing to uh, remote debugging experience to the uh, Lambda platform users. So how uh, how we are doing is that, so as you know that uh, the incoming connections to Lambda container is not allowed. Uh, and even because there's no public IP for the Lambda function and also multiple Lambda containers can share the same IP uh, behind, 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 the, uh, behind NAT gateway. So for solving this problem, uh, so in fact, we are not, and also the another challenge is that uh, the debugger works in a way that they require uh, the remote process to attach themselves uh, through the network, uh, and also for Lambda platform, it is not allowed to to handle this problem. We are just putting a bridge between the debug between the application and between the ID. So so basically, it com so it allows to communicate. The, the different sides of the debugging process, debugging flow uh, through on it. So when you when you con so when you put a breakpoint to your lambda function, so basically the plugin sends 
sends the debugger command to the debugger to to the debug broker itself, and then debug broker itself just propagates the message to the lambda function itself. So so there are multiple forwards just to send and receive a single debug message. Uh, so to achieve these, we are using the web uh, WebSocket connection because the debugging connection uh, should must be stateful. And also, we are also uh, exchanging some uh, Tundra-specific uh, protocol messages between between the Lambda functions and the broker and the and the IDE. Therefore, we are multiplexing the different kinds of data in a single WebSocket connection because you can have multiple WebSocket frame uh, in a single WebSocket connection. Uh, so what we are doing basically is that we are just uh, we are just encapsulating and sending the debug command debug commands and the responses through the uh, secure WebSocket connection uh, between the ID and Lambda functions through the debug broker, which is sit in the middle of uh, these these sites. Sure. Okay. So quite a lot of. Um quite a lot of services on your side being able to allow that bi-directional connection and then it's yeah, ultimately right. web sockets exactly. at, the, at, the, uh, at the end. Oh, that's re- it's really amazing you've achieved that. And the, uh, the, from the user's perspective, you don't see any of that complexity. It's just a case of adding a breakpoint in your IDE and you can, yeah. you can have that. Users can, can just install our, uh, the IDE plugin, the IntelliJ plugin or, or the VS Code plugin, and then just use Tundra layer on their Lambda function. So in this case, Lambda function and our IDE plugins just handles the, the, all the stuff. So you just, just have the remote debugging experience on their local without making any other configuration change. That's really cool. Um, okay, guys. So that we got through the questions that I wanted to go through. Was there anything else you guys wanted to cover uh, in this session? Well, I just have wanted to say just like, for us who are just testing, for us, like for people who are listening to us today and a bit like still hesitant about like going serverless, um, I can say that like now we have like many different, very, very nice tools in terms of like debugging, in terms of like what you did with SLS tools, in terms of security and just like, I'm not talking about just for Thunder. So uh, the, you know, the tooling and the environment is actually now ready for people to get started with like, and even like, and and we are always talking about the tooling and everything, but there's something that I, I, I like to also mention that like the community of serverless is growing very well. And all serverless community is, is kind of the, the, I didn't see that much of communities. Like I, I've been part of like AI communities or anything else, but like um, uh, this community was kind of the best community that I see to help people actually to get started with. And you, they can be sure that like, they will learn from something from the you know the offline materials like the videos and everything, and they will ask questions and see the responses very very fastly on Slack or on Stack Overflow. Like it's actually now we have the you know that maturity as a community and also as, as tooling uh, to get started with serverless. Even if it can be a greenfield project or it can be kind of a lift and shift, uh, both like the technology have the the, the same maturity. And also in terms of community, we have like very nice AWS service, Heroes IQ, and very really, like other people who are ready to help people help uh, the beginners to, to start with serverless. I think it's the, the service community has been extremely friendly um, from from my journey into serverless, and I'm just seeing it growing more and more, like you said. So yeah, I think it's a 
it's a great time to get involved with serverless. And I think there's still the space for more more tooling to be made and more more content. So I think it's a good time also to get involved on that side of things. And there's a lot of support and quite a friendly group of people who will uh, help you on that journey. Exactly. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time today, uh, Emma and Sirkin. Anyone who wants to find out any more about Thundra can go to Thundra.io. And there's also a demo site there if you want to play around with the tool. And I'm sure Emma will be very happy to hear from you if you have any questions about uh, what Thundra does and what it can do for you potentially. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation with Sirkin and Emra, and thank you so much for your time today. If you want to keep up to date with our content, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app. Go to servers-transformation.com to check out our blog articles, and also check out SLS DevTools, an open source project maintained by Theodo that helps to improve the development experience of working with serverless.